For the soul that sinneth, it shall also die. The wages of sin is death. Jesus died for you. Jesus paid the debt that I owe, that you owe. Jesus was delivered up for our offenses, our transgressions. But then he was raised up because of our justification. He who knew no sin became our sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. We're coming to the end of our Gospel of John study, and uh, at least the Sunday morning part of it. And uh, we've come to the point where Jesus is crucified. It's the reason that he came to earth. Jesus, from the beginning of John, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, or the sin of the world. So I'm going to read John 19, and uh, then we're going to talk about this idea of Jesus as our Passover lamb. Then Pilate had Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip. The soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put a purple robe on him. Hail, king of the Jews, they mocked as they slapped him across the face. Pilate went outside again and said to the people, I'm going to bring him out to you now, but understand clearly that I find, I find him not guilty. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said, Look, here is the man, in Latin, Eki homo. When they saw him, the leading priests and temple guards began shouting, Crucify him, crucify him. Take him yourselves and crucify him, Pilate said. I find him not guilty. The Jewish leaders replied, by our law, he ought to die because he called himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was more frightened than ever. He took Jesus back into the headquarters again and asked him, where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. Why don't you talk to me, Pilate demanded. Don't you realize that I have the power to release you or crucify you? Then Jesus said, you would have no power over me at all unless it were given to you from above. So the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. Then Pilate tried to release him, but the Jewish leader shouted, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who declares himself a king is a rebel against Caesar. When they said this, Pilate brought Jesus out to them again. Then Pilate sat down on the judgment seat on the platform that is called the stone pavement in Hebrew, Gabbatha. It was, about the, it was about noon on the day of preparation, the sixth hour, uh, the day of preparation for the Passover. And Pilate said to the people, look, here is your king. Away with him, they yelled. Away with him, crucify him. What? Crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the leading priest shouted back. Then Pilate turned Jesus over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus away, carrying the cross by himself. He went to the place called the place of the skull in Hebrew, Golgotha. There they nailed him to the cross. Two others were crucified with him, one on either side with Jesus between them. And Pilate posted a sign on the cross that read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. The place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek so that many people could read it. Then the leading priests objected and said to Pilate, change it from the king of the Jews to, he said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate replied, no, 
what I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers had, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they divided his clothes among the four of them. They also took his robe, but it was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said, rather than tearing it apart, let's throw dice for it. This fulfilled the scripture that says, they divided my garments among themselves and they threw dice for my clothing. So that is what they did. Standing near the cross were Jesus' mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, uh, were Mary, all those Marys. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, he said to her, dear woman, here is your son. And he said to this disciple, here is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. This disciple is the one who's writing this gospel. Then Jesus knew that his mission was now finished and to fulfill scripture, he said, I am thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put it on a hyssop branch and held it up to his lips. When Jesus had tasted it, he said, it is finished. In Greek, one word, tetelestai. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It was the day of preparation and the Jewish leaders didn't want the bodies hanging there uh, the next day, which was, this, which was the Sabbath. And a very special Sabbath because it was the Passover. So they asked Pilate to hasten their deaths by ordering that their legs be broken. This would prohibit them from lifting up on their crucified legs and breathing and they would simply suffocate within a matter of minutes. Then their bodies could be taken down. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the two men crucified with Jesus. But, they, but when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. And so they didn't break his legs. One of the soldiers, however, pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water flowed out. This, is, this, report, is from an, a, this report is from an eyewitness giving an accurate account. He speaks the truth so that you may continue to believe. Obviously, John was at the foot of the cross. He was the only disciple, male disciple, at the foot of the cross. This is his eyewitness testimony. These things happen to, in fulfillment of the scripture, scriptures that say, not one of his bones will be broken and they will look on the one they pierced. Afterward, Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jewish leaders, asked Pilate for permission to take down Jesus' body. When Pilate gave permission, Joseph came and took the body away with him. And took the body away. With him came Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus at night. He brought about 75 pounds of perfumed ointment made from myrrh and aloes. Following the Jewish burial custom, they wrapped Jesus' body with the spices in long sheets of linen cloth. The place of crucifixion was near a garden where there was a new tomb never used before. And so because it was the day of preparation for the Jewish Passover, and since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There are four blood sacrifices that the Jewish people offered regularly. They are listed in Leviticus. There was the whole burnt offering. There was the peace offering. There was the sin offering. And there was the trespass offering. Now, I created a sermon today that would probably take me uh, entirely too long to preach. So perhaps at another time, I will cover in detail these other offerings. But Jesus fulfilled the sacrificial system. He became all of those offerings. Briefly, Jesus became the peace offering, 
This was an offering to bring about well-being or shalom. It might be offered in, uh, to fulfill a vow that was made unto God. Jesus is the Prince of Peace because he, he, because he has brought us peace through his offering. Um, in Ephesians 2.14 says, he himself is our peace. We're in rebellion against God. That's in our nature. We are estranged from God. We need peace to be made. And Jesus made that peace. Jesus is also our sin offering. This is perhaps the most familiar. Um, in the Old Testament, the sacrificial animal, often a lamb, takes the place of a person who has sinned. As I quoted at the beginning of this message, the soul that sins will die. The uh, person gave the lamb and the priest put his hands on the head of the lamb and then the lamb was slaughtered and the blood was placed on the altar. Why? Because the lamb took the place of the person. The lamb represented the person. The soul that sins, it will surely die. That's why death remains, right? That's why death is the curse that we are still under. Jesus Christ became our sin. I quoted that just a moment ago. He who knew no sin became our sin. This is not just he became our sins. We are people who are in a fallen world with a fallen sinful nature. And Jesus became that in our place and died on the cross. Jesus is our guilt offering. Now we get to the place where we see that Jesus died in our place as a sinful person, even though he had committed no sin, but he also died to expunge our guilt, to eliminate our guilt. When you do something wrong, you feel guilty for it. Now these days, what people do is simply justify what they've done and say that it's not really wrong and they think that that's the way to deal with guilt. But guilt is not merely a feeling that you may or may not have. Guilt is a state you are in. We are guilty before God. And when the conviction of the Holy Spirit comes down and Jesus promised the disciples that that's what the Holy Spirit would do, he would come to convict the world concerning sin, and righteousness and judgment. Guilt is crippling when you realize what you've done, when you realize what is coming, the judgment that is coming. Jesus became our guilt offering. Interestingly, in the Old Testament, uh, the difference between the sin offering and the guilt offering is that the blood or some of the blood from the lamb that was slaughtered for the guilt offering was placed on the person. The priest took his finger and he placed some of the blood on the right earlobe, on the right thumb, and on the right toe of the person for whom the offering was given. What does that mean? It means that the guilt that that person has incurred as the result of not hearing God and not heeding God, what I do where I go, was taken away. Well, obviously, um, the scripture says very clearly that these uh, offerings were not final. They, they had to continuously be offered because as the writer to the Hebrews says, the, off, the, the, the blood of bulls and goats and lambs can't take away sin. See, all of these offerings that were being given on the altar were pointing to Jesus who became these things 
and died in our place. Jesus is our whole burnt offering. He is the, the, the perfect example of absolute and complete surrender to God. The whole burnt, and in the difference between the whole burnt offering and these other offerings, these other three offerings, is that all of it was burned on the altar. With these other offerings, part of the offering was consumed by the priest and in some case by the people. But the whole burnt offering represented a gift of the entirety, right, of, of the that, that animal, which represented the person giving himself or herself entirely to God. And that's what Jesus did for us. He gave himself entirely to God, where you and I oftentimes, perhaps always, do not. We always have something in reserve, right? Now, this is also an example for us as well, not that I am to give my life as a burnt offering, but in uh, Romans chapter 12, verse one, it says that we are to offer ourselves, our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual and reasonable service of worship. So worship is not just us coming here and enjoying some songs, listening to a message, watching a video, occasionally watching a drama, hmm, pondering some things. Worship is you giving yourself completely to God. All we're doing here in a worship service is seeking to prompt you to have that kind of complete, committed relationship to God. But Jesus did that. Now, those were the offerings that were made consistently throughout the week. But in John's gospel, Jesus is our Passover lamb. Now, the Passover lamb was offered before the Mosaic law was established. The Passover lamb was commanded while the people were still in Egypt. Do you remember the story of the Passover? Very briefly, the 10th plague, the final plague, was the, the, uh, the killing of the firstborn. The Lord said, I'm going to take every firstborn in Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn of the lowest slave. I'm going to take all of those firstborn. The way that you in Israel, children of Israel, can avoid this is by obeying my word. You're going to, at twilight, you're going to slaughter a lamb. You're going to properly cook the lamb, boil the lamb. You're going to eat the lamb, okay? You're going to also eat unleavened bread. That is, you're not going to wait for it to rise, put yeast in it and so forth. You're going to eat bitter herbs. But above all, you're going to take the blood of that lamb and put it where? On the doorposts and the lintel of your home. So when the death angel comes to take the life of the firstborn of everyone in Egypt, he will do what? he will pass over your home. Now, what if a person in Israel said, well, you know, I believe in God, and I think God's a God of love, and I don't think he would do anything like that. Then the firstborn in their household would die because they didn't obey God. See, faith results in obedience. That's what Jesus demonstrates for us, right? In fact, I put our painting back up here that's been up there forever. It says, Jesus learned obedience in the wilderness. This is talking about when Jesus was uh, enduring the temptations during that 40 days at the beginning of his ministry. The death angel would pass over the home where the blood of the lamb had been applied to the lintel and doorposts. 
Well, the entirety of what took place with the Jewish people in Egypt and their exodus from Egypt is symbolic for you and I. Egypt represents the life of sin. It represents the life of sin that we're born into. The children of Israel were born into slavery. They were enslaved by the Egyptians and they had to be delivered from that slavery. God had to um, bring some very, very significant and powerful plagues down upon Egypt to persuade Pharaoh to let them go. He simply wouldn't do it until he lost his firstborn child. And then he said, out, get out of here quickly. And so they literally had to pack up and leave that night. That's what is the idea behind the unleavened bread. Now we're going to observe communion today. And I am using matzah, which is unleavened bread. It is the, the bread that is used by the, uh, by the Jewish people and those who observe Passover um, appropriately. It is unleavened. There's nothing in there to cause it to rise. There's many uh, possible sim uh, symbols there. But the point that I want to make today from John's gospel is that Jesus is our Passover lamb. Let's look at several things. Uh, first of all, starting outside of John's gospel, where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. Did you know that Bethlehem was a town that was near where sacrificial lambs were kept for the temple? Who were the first people to hear the birth announcement of Jesus? Shepherds, out in the fields, watching over their flocks by night. The flock or flocks that they have, may have been watching over could very possibly have been these sacrificial lambs. In John's gospel, John the Baptist called Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's, what I, uh, that's the theme of this message today. Okay, that's John 1, 29. Jesus was crucified on the day of preparation for Passover at the time when the lambs were offered for sacrifice in the temple. Very briefly, John's gospel differs uh, from the synoptic gospels in that he tells us it's the sixth hour when Jesus was crucified. Now, I won't get into the reasoning behind the differences. Uh, I will look at that when we go over John's gospel verse by verse on Wednesday and when we get here. But I will say the significance in John is to impress upon everybody who understood that at noon was when they started slaughtering the Passover lambs. Now, in the law, it said that they were to do that at twilight. The problem is at sundown, it was the Sabbath and they couldn't work on the Sabbath. So what they did is they backed that up several hours so they would have time to slaughter the lambs in time for the Sabbath. They wanted everything to be prepared so that they could eat the Passover on the Sabbath without any further preparation. Further, they were also to scour through their homes and get rid of all the leaven. Um, here is a, a, a brief synopsis of that from Beasley Murray in the Word Biblical Commentary. He says, it is the sixth hour, noon of the preparation day. At this hour, three things take place. Jews cease their work. Leaven is gathered out of the houses and burned. And the slaughtering of the Passover lambs commences. The Passover festival for all practical purposes now begins. John wants to impress upon us this fact. Jesus is our Passover lamb. He is the one whose blood causes the curse of death to pass us by. Um, you, heard, uh, you heard me read this in uh, verse 36. 
like the Passover lamb, none of Jesus' bones were broken. Remember, they were on the crosses. They wanted to expedite their deaths. It's gruesome, but crucifixion was horrible, right? They kept themselves alive by lifting themselves up on the cross and breathing in and then dropping down. It was this continuous pain. As soon as they could no longer lift themselves up to breathe in, then their lungs would be filled with uh, toxic carbon dioxide and they would simply die within a matter of minutes. But once the soldiers came to Jesus, they didn't break it. They just had a club. And I mean, they just busted their shin bones so that their, their upper legs would just fall down and they couldn't push up any longer. But they came to Jesus and they encountered the, the reality that he was already dead. So a soldier put his spear up into Jesus' side. Now, there's a lot of interesting facts uh, related to this, but it says that blood and water came out. Well, this wasn't literally water. It was, in all likelihood, the fluid around uh, the heart as the result of a massive coronary, a massive heart attack. Uh, it's called the pericardial sac, and it would have been filled with a pural, plural uh, effusion. And so as the soldier put his spear in and pulled it out, that would have been part of what came out that was identified as water. Further, I talked to a cardiac doctor one time and he said, well, I don't know that there would have been that much fluid so that you would have seen it, but he thought that the likelihood was that the spear also came up uh, and went through Jesus' stomach as it went up in there. But the symbolism in John is that Jesus is the God-man. This is so cool. I looked at this again because I remember reading this many years ago when I was in seminary, and I had forgotten about it. But the, uh, the Greeks believed that the gods, now their gods were no gods, but this is what they believed, that the gods didn't have red blood. They had a type of blood that looked like water because they ate this fruit that would give them eternal life. So the symbolism to a secular mind, to a, a, a non-Jewish mind, could have been the point that John was making all along, and that is that Jesus is the God-man, right? Now, there are other symbols that are potentially there as well, and John really, really uh, emphasizes this fact because he brings it up again in 1 John, that the blood and the water testify to Jesus, um, in a very real sense, John is simply proving that Jesus was actually human. Uh, right around the time John is writing this gospel, inspired to write this gospel, there is a movement called Gnosticism that is beginning to gain traction. And they didn't believe that a God like Jesus, right, um, an ascended being like Jesus, would actually take on a physical body. They believed that he only appeared. Now, they are called docetic Gnostics from the Greek word dokeo, which means to seem. Jesus only seemed to be a man. He wasn't really a man. He just seemed like a man. One of their sayings was uh, Jesus walked along the shores of the Sea of Galilee, but he left no footprints. They just saw him as sort of this uh, ghostly being that came and, and you know, gave these esoteric sayings. If you read the, the, the Gnostic writings, they're very, very bizarre. But in any event, this is John's way of saying, no, he really did die, okay? They really didn't, didn't break his bones in fulfillment of scripture, and he really did die. Um, so none of his bones were broken. In Exodus 12, 46, uh, God commands Moses to tell the people that you are not to break any bone in the Passover lamb. 
That's the significance here. And this is the, the strongest corollary between understanding that John is presenting Jesus as the Passover lamb, as our Passover lamb. Jesus also took a sip of bitter wine on the cross. We heard that uh, in John 19, 28 through 30. Well, there's a practical reason for that because right after he takes that sip of bitter wine, what does he do? He cries out, it is finished. Well, his mouth would have been basically swollen and caked shut. He would, and they did this really well in the movie, The Passion of the Christ. I mean, he can barely speak. And so moistening his lips with that would allow him to, and swallowing a bit of it into his throat would allow him to open up, lift up on his crucified feet and say, it is finished. The work that I have come to earth to do is now done. So there's the practical reason. But this symbolic reason that may uh, also be why John includes this um, first of all, it fulfills a messianic prophecy in Psalm 69, 21, and he says it is to fulfill prophecy. That is, John says it. Here's Psalm 69, 21. They also gave me a bitter herb in my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. So if you've uh, ever seen what happens to wine when it's been sitting for a long time, it basically does just turn to vinegar, okay? Um, so... It's important for us to realize that at the Passover table down to our day, at every Passover table, there are bitter herbs. And that is intended to represent the bitterness of slavery in Egypt. Our bitterness is our separation from God. Our bitterness is being, um, being isolated in sin right? Jesus took on that bitterness. So there's this identification that's there uh, in Jesus taking the, the bitter herb, all right? Um, the blood of the Passover lamb had to be smeared on the lintel and doorposts of the house, as I mentioned earlier. That's from Exodus 12, 7, in order for them to be saved from the death angel. Listen to what uh, it says in Exodus 12, 13. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Well, the bitter wine, how was it delivered to Jesus? He's, he's up on a cross, okay? Um, we're gonna put the cross back in my truck for the parade. Uh, I left it out last year because it's heavy. I'm always worried about it falling over and whatever, but nobody even looks at the truck as it goes by because it's just a vehicle, okay? They don't look at me because I'm not pretty and I'm not a star, right? But I'm telling you, when I put that cross in the back of the truck, people look at it, people follow it. Jesus said, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself, will draw all people to myself. He was lifted up on the cross. He was above them on this cross. So they took a stalk of hyssop and they pierced a sponge and they dipped it in or poured this sour wine that was probably just cheap wine that the soldiers were drinking. And they lifted up to, to Jesus' lips. Now this is strange one of the soldiers, and I, and I believe there are, there are some, I appreciate the, um, the artistry of Mel Gibson's film, The Passion of the Christ, but there are some real inaccuracies in there. And I'm not just talking about the artistic license he takes, you know, with the weird bald baby and all of that kind of stuff. That's some weird old stuff right there. But there are inaccuracies. Um, when they take the tunic off of Jesus, they rip it. It's 
clear. They didn't rip it. In order to fulfill prophecy, they wanted to preserve it. Clothing wasn't that common, right? You might have two sets of clothes in your possession. And this was a nice woven tunic. They took it off of Jesus and they folded it up and they kept it and they rolled dice to see who would get it, right? Sorry, Mel, you messed that one up, bro, right? The other one is the soldier stabs this uh, the sponge with his spear and lifts it up to Jesus. Well, that's what you would expect would happen, but that's not what happened. They used a stalk of hyssop, right? So a branch of hyssop would have been very, very flexible, and it really would not have been something that you would have used. It, it wouldn't have been the preferred method to try to lift something up. It, you know, it, it would be like you just. Think of any plant that has long branches, but they're, they're not stiff like a, like a tree, okay? Um, anyway, they, they stabbed the, uh, uh, the sponge and they lifted it up. I mean, it's, the sponge is probably like pulling this branch of hyssop over as they're trying to lift it up there. But why did they use it? Okay, this is really, really great. Um, the children of Israel were to smear the blood of the lamb on the doorposts with their hands? No. With a sponge? No. With a stalk of hyssop. That's what they smeared the blood with. Further, in Psalm 51, David uh, reveals to us that hyssop was used as a cleansing agent. The herb hyssop was used as a cleansing agent. David says in his, in his repentance prayer, purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Cleanse me and I will be whiter than snow. Friends, the blood of Jesus is the source of our purification. The blood of Jesus is the source of our cleansing. Jesus fulfilled the entire sacrificial system when he died on the cross. He died never to die again. He died for our sins. But once he paid that penalty, he rose for our justification. And he is never to die again. So you and I have a responsibility to put our faith in this Jesus. Um, I've kind of been alluding to this again and again, but um, listen to uh, Romans 5, 9. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Jesus is our Passover lamb, and he sets us free from sin and death. As the children of Israel were, apply, were instructed to apply the blood of the lamb to the doorposts, it is imperative that you, by faith, allow the blood of the lamb to be applied to the doorposts of your heart. That you realize that you do indeed sin. Now, when I'm saying you, I'm not saying you in, in isolation to me, but I want you to take this seriously, right? Jesus doesn't... Uh, love you because you're a good person. He loves you because he's chosen to love you. That's what love is, right? Love is not just for the lovely. There was a lady out there this morning. Uh, I don't know if any of you in here in Bible study heard her yelling, but uh, there was a lady out there across the street who was just screaming and yelling. I couldn't understand why. I saw these, these people from the other church across the street over here, you know, and she's yelling and she looks like she's yelling at them. 
And so I start walking down the sidewalk here and she looks at me and she starts yelling and I don't have great hearing anyway, so I don't know everything she was saying, but it looked like it, it was some diatribe against uh, religious people and hypocrisy and so forth. But she just was screaming and yelling and screaming and yelling and screaming and yelling and she kind of started looking threatening. And, you know, the last thing I want is for you to not come to church because, you know, there's somebody out there that's prohibiting you or scaring you. So I just stood on the sidewalk and I called 911. I was mad at her. I didn't hate her. Okay. And I just stood there and called and talked to them as I looked at her and she kept screaming and doing what she was doing. And I think she's probably had this happen to her before because about the, the, the time that you would understand if you'd been in these situations that the response time for the police has expired, they're going to be here any minute, she turned on her heel, took her backpack, and walked down the sidewalk. To be honest with you, I, you know, in my flesh, I don't want to have anything to do with somebody like that, right? Um, but obviously, this is somebody that's got probably some sort of mental problem. Well, why do I bring this up? Because Jesus loves her. And she's not an enjoyable person at all, at least my limited exposure to her, right? But I'm not saying that I'm a better person, right? But I'm more self-controlled, apparently. But you and I need to realize that we're sinners and we're in need of a savior. And Jesus died on the cross for our sin. But until I confess my sin, I can't be free of my sin. Until I have faith in Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away my sin, then he's not my savior. He's my savior. He's the savior of the world. But that's not automatic. You've got to make the decision that you would have him as your savior and your Lord. And Lord means you're obedient. Right? Go back uh, several weeks when we talked about the, the, uh, the, the man who was born blind that Jesus healed. Jesus rubbed mud on his eyes, and then he said, now go wash that off in the pool of Siloam. What if the man had just sat there? What if the man had said, well, I don't want to walk all that way, and just started trying to gouge the mud off of his eye? Do you think he would have been healed? He would not have been healed, because there was no obedience behind his alleged faith. There was no real faith, Right? If you trust that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, then there are several things the scripture says very clearly. It says that if you will call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. The name of the Lord is Jesus. If you will call out to Jesus, he will save you. And I do mean you really need to actually do that. Now, many times, and we'll probably do this today, uh, I offer a prayer, call it a sinner's prayer, that people can pray in church where you can call on the name of the Lord, right? But I tell people, you know, you can pray this out loud or you can pray it under your breath, but you really need to say it. You don't just, listen, (laughs) you can't just listen to somebody else talk and assume that because you're going along and you understand them, that you are in some way in line with what they're saying. You're in agreement with others. You can even say amen and nod your head. But when you believe something, you do something about it, right? So when the scripture says, call on the name of the Lord to be saved, that's what it really means. You really need to call on his name. Now, you don't need to use my prayer. You can use any prayer that you want where you're really actually, honestly, calling on Jesus to save you. You're admitting, I am a sinner and I know it and I'm sorry and I need you to save me from my sins. Stop justifying yourself or you'll go to hell. That's honest to God's truth. If you justify yourself, if you justify your sin, you go to hell. 
If you trust Christ and confess your sin, then you go to heaven. Now, I'm not just going to give some scattershot out here, you know, some sins to try to throw some guilt on you and make you feel bad. What I'm praying is that the conviction of the Holy Spirit will rain down on you so you realize you need the Lamb of God to save you. You're not getting into heaven on your good works, friend. Your good works aren't good enough. Nobody's are. You may be a much better person than me, but you're still not getting in apart from Jesus. Jesus said, you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them, right? The scripture says very clearly that whatever is not from faith is sin. If you choose to trust yourself rather than Christ, then you are not of faith. The way the scripture is talking about it, it's talking about faith in Jesus, right? So it's very simple. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Further, just a few verses back from Romans 10, 13, which I just quoted, whoever will call on the name of the Lord, the scripture says this, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. So I invite you to do that today. I invite you to do that right now. I'm gonna ask you to bow your head and close your eyes for just a moment. You're gonna close your eyes out of reverence and also so that you can respect the people around you. So if you don't believe all this stuff, don't worry. Nobody's gonna hurt you. Nobody's gonna come and and harass you, right? But if you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit that you need to be saved, that you need to call on Jesus, or that you maybe, you know, you did something like this a long time ago and you need to come back to Jesus, then I'm inviting you right now to pray this prayer. And I want you to actually say these words. You can say them out loud or under your breath, but I want you to actually say these words. Say, dear Jesus, I am a sinner and I know it and I'm sorry for my sin. You are the Lamb of God. You died on the cross. You rose from the dead and you can take away my sin. I invite you to come into my heart. I ask you to take control of my life. Jesus Christ, you are Lord, I trust you. I will follow you. In your name I pray, amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer, you're as saved as any preacher or any holy person that you think you know, because it's by faith. The scripture says, by grace, you are saved through faith. Grace is what God did for you. Faith is what you do in response to trust him. By grace, you are saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. If you prayed that and you meant that prayer, then you're saved. What are the next steps? Well, you saw our brother Roy last week get baptized right here. That's the first thing you're, you're commanded to do. After you're, uh, you confess that Jesus is Lord, you, you make it public to people. You confess it openly to people. Right? Jesus said, if you confess me before other people, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. If you deny me before other people, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. First thing you can do today, I don't have a baptistry here to just, you know, to dip you, is you can confess that you've chosen to follow Jesus. And you can do that by just finding another believer or several other believers and letting them know. Um, we're going to do things a little differently today, so I'm not going to have a, a prayer time up here, okay? Because we're going to take communion. 
but I would invite you to do that. Now there are bulletins. Uh, we didn't make a big deal out of it, but there's this beautiful flower arrangement uh, as you go to the back of the room right there and next to it, there's a podium. And on that podium, there's some bulletins. You can take one of those and you'll see on the left side, there's a place for you to give feedback. And you can just indicate, hey, you know, that's what I did. I prayed that prayer with you today. I want to follow Jesus. And uh, you can put you can put that in the offering bag when it's past the end of the service, or you can fill it out at the end of the service and you can put it in the box that is on the way out the door. Or you can take your mobile device, go to lifewillchurch.com, click the feedback link, and you can let us know that way, right? High tech, low tech, no tech, you can do this, but do something about it, right? Now, as far as the table of the Lord, um, we're going to we're going to sing one song, and during that song, I want you to get your heart right with Jesus. Okay, if you got unconfessed sin in your life, then I want you to confess it to the Lord. That's how you get that's how you get free of it. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Confess, and He will save you. He will cleanse you. He will set you free. Do that during this song. The scripture is very clear. When we partake of the table of the Lord, we're remembering what Jesus did on the cross. With the bread, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. It's given for you. As often as you partake of it, remember that that's what I did. With the cup, he said, this is my blood, which is poured out for you. The blood that you put on the lintel and doorposts of your, your, your metaphorical house, your, your, your body, your, your mind, your soul, okay? You're allowing that to be applied to you as you confess. Use this first song to do that, okay? And then uh, I'll put the stole over my shoulders and I'll take the coverings off of the table and I'll gesture for you to come forward. You don't have to take anything. But if you would like to come forward, you can. Um, you can take communion back to your seat and partake of it at any time during the following two songs, right? Um, you can take a little space over here and, or over here where we normally stand with you or sit with you to pray. Um, there is a, a trash can that I'm gonna bring out here so that you can take the little cups and you can throw them away in there. Or if you go back to your seat, you can throw the cup away on your way out the door. So that's the practical stuff, right? So. Let's put ourselves before the Lord and let's make sure that we don't partake of the table of the Lord in an unworthy manner. That means I don't want you just munching on, you know, this cracker. Okay, well, you know, it tastes like this to me. You know, shooting that grape juice. No, well, you know, it's just, you haven't understood what this is. And there's a stern warning by the apostle Paul. He said, he that eateth and drinketh of the table of the Lord unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation unto himself. I'd rather you just stay away if you don't get it, that's the scripture. And obviously I memorized that a long time ago because I memorized it in King James. Take it seriously, all right?